This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is a show that we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you. And we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. So make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here, as well as getting some killer free stuff by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality even relationship management and breakups. That stuff is all obviously extremely important to your success, so make sure you get a handle on that as well. We've also got our boot camps and our live training running every single week here in Hollywood, California. Details on that at theartofcharm.com or just give us a call or even email me, Jordan H. at The Art of Charm, and I'll tell you exactly what you need to know to get started with that. I'm looking forward to meeting all you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Todd Henry, author of Die Empty. He describes himself as an arms dealer for the creative revolution. We're gonna address a listener email about episode 300 and our education system as well as should people go to college or not. And we're gonna talk about how the US is gonna innovate, hopefully, our way out of the current rut that we find ourselves in and how we can retain inspiration to create in our workplace and repel the trend towards mediocrity. We're gonna talk about how to surround ourselves with people that will give us candid and reliable feedback, how to die empty and leave it all on the table. More from Todd Henry at accidentalcreative.com and toddhenry.com. We'll link that up in the show notes, but enjoy this one and die empty. All right, Todd Henry, you've got an interesting job description in that I don't know if I fully understand what it is. You're kind of a consultant, which sounds boring, but then you're a creator, which sounds exciting, and then you help other people do that. I, I don't really know. Accidental creative, probably not really an accident, but I'll let you introduce yourself because I'm obviously not doing a good job of it. <laughs> well, that, I think you just perfectly captured my life, which is, you know, long stretches of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror, which I think is the life of the creative professional. Excellent. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I like to, I guess, succinctly kind of um, tongue in cheek say that I'm an arms dealer for the creative revolution. Um, you know, my job is to equip creative pros. So designers, writers, um, thinkers, entrepreneurs, people who lead things, you know, help them be better at what they do. And that, I guess, job description has kind of evolved over many years. Uh, you know, I've sort of had my finger on a lot of things. Started in the music business for many years, led creative teams, and then launched my own consultancy um, several years ago uh, as a way to kind of reach out and share some of what I've learned over time about uh, some of the dynamics of creating for a living or, you know, I guess existing what I call the create on demand world, which is what many of us have to do today. Um, we kind of have to make it up as we go. And with that comes a unique set of pressures. So I started exploring some of those dynamics and researching and sharing what I was learning and consulting with companies. And then in 2011, uh, released a book called The Accidental Creative and 2013 released a book called Die Empty. And now I mostly spend my time working with companies and helping them understand how to create more effectively. Excellent. Okay. I love it. You can't set out to do something like that. You really can't. And you know, it's funny because it was, um, it was totally an accident. I did not intend to start a business. Uh, I was just, frankly, I was trying to help some of my friends who were working at, you know, companies like Procter and Gamble and some of these like larger companies doing marketing roles and things like that. And coming from a more of a creative professional background, you know, I kind of had a sense of the dynamics of creating and how things kind of went and some of the ups and downs and what to do when you're blocked and all of that. But some of my friends didn't have that background because they didn't consider themselves to be creatives, even though they had to go to work and solve problems every day. And they were prone to many of the same dynamics that the creative pros that I worked with were prone to. And so I just, I kept telling them, well, you know what you are? You're an accidental creative. That's what you are. You, you don't mean to be, but you are. And so you have to figure out how to create 
for a living because that's what you're accountable for. And, um, and so the term kind of stuck. And when I launched a podcast in 2005, I called it the accidental creative because I was primarily trying to reach out to all those people who maybe didn't consider themselves a creative and yet they were, they are, they have to go to work, solve problems, um, you know, confront uncertainty on a daily basis. And so that phrase kind of stuck. And then, you know, the business kind of launched off of that with the name accidental creative, which is a little bit, I guess, um, unfortunate because the name itself is in a way ironic. It's almost the opposite of what I teach, which is purpose and rhythm and practices, you know, to help you be more creative. But, Definitely. uh, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. And it's funny because when I was preparing for this show, I actually thought of one of my first businesses was, was an accidental discovery too. I used to, when I was in high school, I used to get detention slips from the teacher and fill them out in pencil. And then I'd go to detention and all, all you can do in detention is homework, read, or just be quiet with your head on your desk. And so like all the stoners would be sleeping and stuff, but I would just do my homework, which I was going to do anyway at home. And I would then have them signed by the, the woman who like this old bag who was like in charge of detention and she would sign it in pen on the slip. And so then you get a copy of the slip, you get the slip back and you're supposed to give it to the teacher that gave you the detention, and then they keep a copy there or whatever. And so I would skip the last period of classes on many days, and I would rack up detentions because of that, and then I would change the date on the slip so that I'd already done the time. So if I had leftovers, I would sell those to the bad kids. And, <laughs> and I had a perfect market for that because I saw them all every single day that I went to detention when I actually had to go. So it was great because it was like I was getting paid to do my homework in a classroom and then the rest of the money went to me just leaving school like two hours early. <laughs> and you found the perfect product market fit, right? Right. With the other kids' detention. That's great. Yeah. Because yeah. I'd be like, oh, you have detention today, but you want to go smoke pot at the gas station? Well, if you give me $5, I'll get you a slip that says you spent that time in detention instead of you know, smoking unfiltered cigarettes at your dad's house or whatever, you know, <laughs> I don't know what these kids were doing, but yeah, it's funny because if you look at the lives of entrepreneurs, people who have started substantial businesses, you see those roots in their childhood. I mean, it seems like a lot of them were, I mean, you almost call them hustlers, right? They yes. Were, they're trying to hustle for a dollar, even when they were six, seven, eight years old. And it's funny because many of them say, I basically do the same thing today, except I do it at scale because I've been able to do it at scale now. But you know, whether it's like mowing lawns or figuring out how to organize. This one guy I talked to figured out how to organize all the kids in the neighborhood who have paper routes so that he would get a percentage of their paper route. And he would, he added some like marginal value that really wasn't value to their, to their lives. But somehow he convinced them to give them like a substantial percentage of their paper route just for kind of basically organizing them. Um, you know, and it's just, it's amazing how you see those things carry over then into adulthood. They, they kind of ripple, you know, through the, the coming decades. Yeah, it's really funny to see that. I I would love to find a collection of stories of like well-known entrepreneurs first businesses cuz mm. some of them are, you know, lemonade stands and blah blah blah, but some of them are just ingenious. Ingenious. Like the newspaper thing is probably up there depending on how the system works, but you hear mm. about some of these tech guys and, you know, their stories aren't that exciting generally cuz it's like, "Oh, I made a game programming in basic when I was 9." Like, "Oh, well, whatever." But when you hear about somebody who did something non-tech where it's like, my job was to, and I, I think it was my dad who told me this or, or somebody in my family, he used to like run numbers in his neighborhood or something mm -hmm. where like you at the neighborhood had this like unofficial lottery and you would go and door to door to door and you would be like, oh, the numbers are this, the numbers are that. And like somehow that ended up being a lottery for the neighborhood. <laughs> Have you heard of this? I've not. No, but it's it's brilliant. <laughs> Maybe it's a Detroit thing. And like the kids were just couriers, but they could get themselves a treat at the end of the day by running sure. to the neighbor's house instead of kicking a ball in the road or whatever boring thing they were doing at the time. Well, you know, so, I've told we have three children, 11, 9 and 7 years old. And uh, yeah, I've told all of them, when you get to be 14 years old, I'm going to help you start a business. I'm going to be your seed round investor. Uh, you know, I'm going to help you with strategy. I'm going to help you figure out what you're going to sell, who you're going to sell it to, you know, what, what the market is for it, what the, you know, how to price it, all of that. I'm going to figure, I'm going to help you figure that out because I think really probably one of the best bits of experience any kid can have. And I just listened to your incredible 
episode with James Altucher and he was talking about you know, sort of a similar thing like teaching kids to learn through you know learn uh, through through the act of doing rather than just sitting in a classroom and absorbing information but um, you know, we've already warned my kids, listen, this is going to be a rite of passage for you. You're going to have to start a business because I think that's probably one of the, you know, in the coming decades, it's probably going to be the absolute best possible educational experience they can have. Interesting. All right. Well, good. I, I think I got this awesome listener email and I kind of want you to opine here as well. And I usually just do these on my own and now you get to help. I talked with James Altucher about college, you know, he's a big thinker that this is a huge waste of time. Nobody wants to do this. So I got this email from Britt and he's been listening for a really long time. He says, hey, Jordan, it's too bad you removed the ability to make comments on the website, which I did because everything was like Viagra and the spam thing just doesn't work that well. <laughs> and, and he says, I generally feel like you've been down on college for a long time and I don't think you give it much credit. Sometimes I think you're speaking from your own personal experience. Your college education wasn't much of a help to you and now you're promoting your own personal experience as a prescription for everyone else. To use an analogy, it's like somebody who went and won a bunch of money in a casino telling everyone else they should just go and bet money in a casino just because it worked out well for you doesn't mean it'll work out well for everyone. In general, I think people should go to college unless they have a very good reason not to, and they've got the drive to make their non-college plan work out. Most 20-year-olds aren't going to be doing anything valuable with that time, so a structured environment would be helpful. I'm writing this email because I think 9 out of 10 18-year-olds who follow your advice to skip college will ultimately end up worse off in the end. Of course, the rare exception who drops out of college, starts a business, and becomes a millionaire will probably be on some podcast in the future telling everybody they should follow his example as if it would turn out anywhere close to his story. Meanwhile, the majority who end up worse off in the end won't get put in front of a camera or microphone to warn people about how badly this could turn out. I do agree college might not be for everyone and thought your advice about working in a law firm or hospital first is good because I gave the advice to try the job as close as you can before you get the degree. Mm -hmm. Also, if someone's goal is to spend a large sum of money at art school or psychology degree, then maybe it's not worth their time or money to go to college. I also thought James Altishir sounded like someone's eccentric uncle who quote unquote has it all figured out and he's telling kids not to go to college. I just want to nod and smile while, while ignoring most of what he has to say. He's also overly pessimistic about corporations, like how companies have record profits because they laid off all their workers. That sounds far from reality. I should also mention I got my bachelor's degree in computer science, and the amount of money I earn is far in excess of the money I spent getting a college education. I never expected to work for one company my whole life, like James Altucher seems to think we all believed, and jobs are plentiful in the field. None of this fiction about companies laying off all their employees. While writing software is a much higher paying profession than most college educated people would get, there's still a sizable difference in income between people who have a high school diploma versus a four year degree in college. And he cites a study because he knows how to argue. By the way, I remember listening to an old podcast of yours where a guest said that an Apple executive said that they hired Chinese workers because the American education system wasn't creating good workers anymore. To me, that sounded like a defensive excuse for the Apple executive to dismiss complaints that Apple wasn't hiring American workers, i.e. I'll blame someone else. But I couldn't help but think, isn't Apple hiring a bunch of manual labor workers in China? Aren't they hiring Chinese workers because of their low wages? The Chinese education system is heavy on rote learning. So if his complaint about the American education system were true, then what is the American system doing wrong that the Chinese system is doing right? It seemed to me that the Apple exec's comment was really off base because the Chinese education system is really about making low-paid manual labor workers which is what Apple wants for assembling its products. The U.S. would be doing itself a huge disservice if it mirrored the Chinese education system. Personally, if I were the Chinese government and I wanted to sabotage the U.S. economy, I'd recommend to every American kid that college is a waste of time. Sure, there might be a few highly successful entrepreneurs who will probably be successful if they went to college anyway, but most kids would end up worse off in the end, and that would allow China to ascend above the U.S. I'd bet on a bunch of college-educated Chinese a long time before I'd bet on a bunch of Americans with high school diplomas. Touche. That's a good email. There's a <laughs> lot of good stuff in there. And it's, you got me, Brett. I'm a Chinese agent. And so is James Altucher. Um, no, but, <laughs> but Todd, I'm glad you're here for this because first of all, this is a really good argument because I don't give college a lot of credit, but in part, it's because I went to college for seven years and I got a law degree. And it's some, on one hand, I really want that time back and it's impossible. And on the other hand, I'm not using that education, but I think that that is all made relatively moot by the point that most 20-year-olds aren't going to be doing anything valuable with that time. I would have right. wasted that time 
Like knowing what I know now, no, I'd go travel and I'd learn languages, I'd learn how to code and blah, 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 but most 20-year-olds are just going to fart around. Right. I think there are two different arguments going on in the debate, one of which is the, the just the inherent value of a college education, and the other one being kind of more of the cost-benefit analysis yes. of a college education. And I am on the side that would say that a college education, generally speaking, is actually quite valuable. Um, I think you know, I, I learned a lot about how to study, how to research, how to organize my work, uh, how to collaborate with others. I mean, all of these things that I needed to learn when I jumped into the workforce, and you could argue, well, you would have learned it anyway. Well, yeah, possibly. That's that's possibly true. But it's great to learn that in a relatively risk-free environment, you know, um, rather than jumping yeah. out into the marketplace and trying to learn on the job. You know, there are a lot of things I was able to learn uh, with my with a group of peers who are kind of at a similar life stage and develop those disciplines. But I will also say when I was in school, and this was, by the way, uh, you know, quite a while ago, I'm a little older, probably than maybe the average listener of the podcast. But, you know, when I was in, in college, you know, I was able to work during the summer months and pay for a huge chunk of my college education by working you know, like 14 hours a day or 15 hours a day during the summer. I was able to pay for a significant chunk of my income. And I think the four years of college education for me cost something like $40,000, $40,000, which by the way, was also the average starting salary for a role in my profession, entry level position the year out of college. And now the average starting salary in my profession the year out of college is really about the same, maybe a little more, not a lot more. Um, but the average cost of the education has increased four or five times. So I, I think that's one of the things I struggle with is, you know, at what point does it not make sense to invest money to obviously to go into debt and to really put a noose around your neck and straddle yourself for several years to get an education when you could actually jump out, start making money, figure out what it is you want to do. And then if you need to go back and get some supplemental education, go back and get your education once you have your bearing. Exactly. I think we're in a stage right now where I think that over the next decade or so, I think something has to happen in the education system because I think that the current state is just untenable. Yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you what'll probably happen. Rich kids will go to really good schools. Medium and low level schools will be trade schools or like really low level training programs. Or they'll probably still going to be, and I don't mean really rich. I don't mean like Stanford, Yale, and Harvard are going to be the only schools. I mean, schools like, you know, the top tier schools will be around because there'll be this upper middle crust that will go there and pay $250,000 for a college education and everybody else will either start learning on the job and or there's going to be a massive darth in people that can do college level work and and some companies might even be like you know what screw college we're going to send you to computer coding boot camp but you need experience and here's where you get experience you work in our like low level sister company that codes apps you know right. for mobile that might be better for us but I think his other point is really good because nine out of 10, 18 year olds who follow your advice to skip college will end up worse off in the end. Britt's probably right on that. So I don't think no one should go to college, but I do think that if you're 18 and you are running a cool business or you have some cool ideas or you're going to college because you don't know what else to do, then don't go to college. Right. I, I went to law school because I didn't know what else to do. That is a terrible reason to continue right. studying or study in the first place. You know, going to college now, I would have taken a completely different path. I would have studied completely different things. But here's the caveat. Right now, I would never go back to college, not because college is a waste of time, but because I don't have homework. I don't have the same work ethic of studying that I did back then. I've got, I got shit to do, man. I can't be going to school. It's really hard to go back to school. Even a year out, I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad that's over. I'm never going right. back. If you feel like that's you, you, you can't quit and go back. It's going to be impossible. Right. No, that, and I, I think that's perfectly fair. I, I do think that um, it's, you know, sometimes we put it in this either or framework, which I think m might be, you know, a bit of a straw man as well. I, I, I don't see why it's not possible to do a both and, right? So yeah, jump into the workforce, start a business, do something, go to school on the side, you know, try to find a way to, but, but only to your point, only if you know what it is you really want to do. I mean, if you're just going to college, because that's the next logical thing to do after high school, you're probably going to, 
throw your money down the drain, right? It's probably not going to be valuable to you. But if you really have a a strong sense of, okay, here's why I'm going to college. There's an end to it. I know the general direction I want to take, at least for the first five years of my career, I think that's an entirely different thing. But I think, I think many of the arguments are, you know, from people who end up straddled with debt, they get out of school, they can't find jobs because they chose up, maybe chose to study something that isn't really something they had to go to college for, frankly. I mean, they could read, you know, three or four dozen books and probably get the gist of the education, right? I think that's where a lot of the arguments are sourced on the other side. I agree. And the other thing is, you're right, it's it's not just black and white strategies where, for example, well, I need a college degree to work at all of these places and these big companies, they have these stringent requirements. Sure, so go to a community college and spend $18,000, you know what I mean? And you'll be fine. Right. Or go... Or if, or if that just sounds awful, go to San Jose State University, you know what I mean? Or something like that, where you're going to pay a tenth of the price. Because if unless you want a certain type of top-level job, or you're doing the classic mistake, which was even a mistake in the 90s when I went to school, in the early 2000s when I went to school, which is you're relying on your college degree to speak for you to get a job, right. you're in trouble. Because then that's how you end up spending $140,000 for a degree in anthropology, and then you go... But I've got a college degree, and you're up That's against right. a pool of applicants that studied what anthropology as well, but they paid eighteen and a half grand for it at a place that's you know in a local community school, and they lived with their parents for the first two years. You know, those people have a lot more options because there's a lot less debt. And yes, they don't have a fancy degree, but they've still got a degree. And if the company's only hiring people with degrees because they need to check off a box. It doesn't matter if that degree cost you $100,000 or if it cost you $10,000. That's true. And, and you know, your college degree will can impact your first job, whether or not you get your first job after that, whether you keep your job and whether you advance is purely based on your work ethic and your skill and how you bring yourself to your job. So it may or may not be worth it in the long run. <laughs> and it's all going to vary depending on the individual. Yeah, and, and Britt is also right. The, the group of us on microphone saying college is not necessarily the way, we're self-selecting, right? There's a lot of people who go, right. college isn't necessarily the way, and they're drinking in the alley outside my office here, right? Right, um, exactly. But they just can't tell you that. And there's plenty of people that that go to college and do really well. Uh, but I think it's like, is that because of college? It's really tough. Oh, sorry. But I was going to say, I think, I think one of the things my wife and I have talked about a lot, especially as it relates to our children, is you know, we try to reinforce in them, we want you to give yourself options. We want you to have lots of options. Because when you have lots of options in life, things are generally going to turn out better for you than if you only have one or two options. And one of the things that an education, a college education can do is give you options. But if that comes at the expense of having to straddle yourself with debt in order to get it, then you're actually not increasing your options, you're limiting your options. Because then you have to take a job because it pays the most, not because it's necessarily the the best fit for you or the best career path that you want to pursue. You know, and you're kind of limiting your options. So in some circumstances, I think a college education does in fact increase your pool of options. But in some circumstances, it may actually limit your pool of options, at least in, in the short term. Yeah, I definitely agree. And And last but not least... I love the point about Chinese workers being manual labor robots. And and it's true. One thing we're really good at in America is showing people how to create original ideas. And I know there's a lot of literature that says that, oh, we're always recycling a bunch of crap. And we're going to talk about this a little bit on the show today, you know, this being the accidental creative episode and everything. But the Chinese education system is largely creating a generation or very likely, you know, generalizing here to a point that's unfair, but there's a lot of Chinese education that is turning people into machine metal stampers and not architectural designers, right? And there's plenty of great schools in in big cities in China, but there's a lot of places there that are, you know, education is abysmal compared to what it is in the United States. So comparing the Chinese and American worker thing, you're right, it's probably, it's probably an Apple executive justifying hiring cheap manual labor. I doubt he wishes he went to school in China, that same executive, right? Right, so. yeah, I agree. And it's so hard because you're comparing different cultures, you know, different value systems. Right. I do think the key to the United States recovering from its economic malaise is not going to be somehow figuring out how to better structure what we already have. We're going to innovate our way out, right? We're going to create new value, new industries. That's how we're going to actually continue to grow the economy. And, um, you know, that's not going to be the result of 
you know, worker drones. It's going to be the result of people tapping more fully into their intuition, tapping into more synthesized form of thinking and, and actually beginning to innovate our way out of the economic malaise. Exactly. No, you're 100% right. And I'm, I'm living in the middle of that right now. There's guys downstairs that invented a cup that knows what's in the cup, how many calories it has, how hydrated you are during the day. And it has yeah, like an, that. Yeah. yeah, it's called Vessel and it's really neat. I, I think it's weird, but I mean, it's really neat. And then there's guys upstairs that invented some app so that you can communicate so that school kids can communicate with their teachers and their school via text without sharing phone numbers. You can even share assignments and you can turn things in via this app as far as I know. And I remember going up there, they had a party and I thought, oh, that's cool. How are you guys doing? And they were like, oh, it's all right. You know, we're just starting. And I saw this iPad that was showing their installs. And I said, oh, you got 63 installs in the last day or two. That's that's pretty good, I guess, you know, if you're just starting. And they said, Oh yeah, but it's that's in millions and that's not installs. It's it's installs and new users. And I was like, you got six point three million <laughs> new people using this in the last day, and they're like, Well, yeah, and you know, that's because we get whole school districts on board all at once. So there's tens of thousands of people signing up all at once, and we're doing a few of those every day. And I was like, How is that even possible? I mean, that's insanity. And he's yeah. like, yeah, well, you're not really in our market, so you don't really notice. And I'm thinking, the whole world is going to be using this app. <laughs> you know, like, right. how do I get options in this thing, you know? This is amazing. Those are the people that are going to sell their companies, and you hear about this app you never heard of just got bought for $184 million by Cisco Systems. And we invented things like automobiles in that industry. We're just going to invent something else. It's just not going to be Detroit. It's going to be San Francisco and other places like it. That's right. And you're in San Francisco, right? And yep. I'm there quite a bit in New York, um, even you know, Chicago, even, frankly, even a lot of cities in the Midwest. I mean, I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, and there's just a palpable buzz um, in the tech community um, in all of these cities. And it does really feel like we're on the verge of something really great happening. I feel like the last you know, 15 or 20 years has kind of been the precursor to some really great thing that's about to happen. And you can, you can almost feel it. You can almost sense it in the entrepreneurial community. Um, but I don't think anybody yet has quite figured out exactly what it is. You know, this internet of things that we're about to experience, I think over the coming decade or so. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. It's an exciting time to be alive. Yeah. Um, you know, Kevin Kelly wrote an article a couple of weeks ago, um, talking about how people are saying, oh boy, if I'd have been alive back in the early you know, 1900s, or oh boy, if I'd have been alive during the internet boom or the computer boom of the you know, 1970s and 80s or the 1990s during the first dot com, but boy, if I had been in the marketplace, then that would have been the ideal time to be an entrepreneur. And the, the whole point of the article was, you're not too late. It's not too late. As a matter of fact, this is the perfect time to be an entrepreneur. This is the perfect time to be entering the marketplace, to be coming up with new ideas, to try to scale your ideas. You're not too late. As a matter of fact, you're right on time. And I think it's funny because I, I hear that sentiment so often from people that, oh, you know, boy, it would have been great 10 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I love the way he dismantled that argument by, by saying, no, we are on the verge of something really amazing, um, but, but you have to have the courage to step in. Yeah, it's really funny to hear that because, oh man, if I'd been alive when we started manufacturing cars, I would have invested in oil. I mean, come on, you know, like right. 2020, 2020 hindsight. Yeah, sure. Oh, I wish I'd invested in Tesla and Yahoo and Google. Well, yeah. What about that app that, all, you know, all those kids, they probably need money like crazy. Right, that's yeah, right. They got $2.3 million. That's why they were having a party. I bet they needed $20 million to make right. it happen. Where's your money? And if you don't have the money to invest, why aren't you in a sleeping bag outside trying to get hired? You know, those, those right. are the hustlers that make millions. Yeah, um, everything seems inevitable in hindsight. Of <laughs> and course. I think that's you know, one of the curses of kind of the creative marketplace is that you look back and everything seems inevitable, but nothing seemed ine seems inevitable at the time when you're doing it, when you're confronting the uncertainty, when you're having to you know, deal with the constraints of resources and time and, and all of that um, and, and people calling you crazy. Right. And, and that's kind of what you're talking about with Die Empty and things like that, right? Because you work with companies and creative people. You found a lot of people that settled in and sort of get comfy and they throw things on cruise control. And your job is to shake that off, right? To help them shake that off. Yeah, that's right. I mean, over, you know, the course of the last decade or so that I've been working pretty intimately with companies uh, and, and, you know, helping them 
kind of find their path and helping creatives figure out how to bring more of who they are to what they do. I mean, I really discovered that one of the biggest issues that people have are all of these things that they're carrying around inside of them that are these little hunches, these little intuitions, these dreams, these things that they would like to do, these places they would like their work to take them that they've never acted on. They've never done anything about. And, you know, this became such a recurring thing as I would go in to talk to companies about, hey, here's how you structure your time, your your focus, your energy, you know, and kind of be doing these more, I guess, kind of technical types of things with these companies. And then afterward, people would pull me aside and they would start saying, hey, you know, and, and they were kind of, they would start sharing with me all these ideas and dreams and, um, you know, business plans and these things that they wanted to do, you know, inevitably, they would say, I would love to act on this, but, you know, I've got my job, I've got a mortgage, I've got a family, I've got all these constraints pulling at me. Um, and that was really the genesis of the book Die Empty was, you know, I just had so many conversations with these people and there were so many patterns that emerged over time within these stories. I thought, you know, this is really something that needs to be discussed communally because I think that this is kind of a rampant thing that people are dealing with. I would imagine it is. I mean, it seems like it would be really easy to enjoy your success and just stop doing it. And plus you got to play it safe because now you got a board of directors and you've got all this. I mean, it, it can be really tough. So how do we start to do that? Because I know just from looking at other entrepreneurs in my area, like there's a lot of passion here. And it's hard to imagine those people going, eh, I'm good. But then when I talk to some of the older cats and stuff like that, they're investing a lot, but in their own work, they seem really bored. Right, right. Yeah, and, and there are kind of um, seven kind of areas that I saw that were common patterns in these stories that I was hearing from people. I, I call these the seven deadly sins that lead to mediocrity because really that what these people were describing to me was kind of a state of mediocrity. It was a state of having given up. Um, you know, where mediocrity comes from two words in the original language, medius meaning middle and ochrus meaning rugged mountain. So to be mediocre literally means to stop halfway up a rugged mountain, you know, to stop halfway to your objective, to settle in and say, yeah, close enough. You know, these were kind of seven ways that I saw people compromising the deeper work that they knew they should be doing, the intuition that they had, they were kind of ignoring because of these external forces that were acting against them. And the first one was just aimlessness. At some point, they had lost sight with the through line for their work or what I call their productive passion. The thing that was truly driving them that was beneath the surface and maybe they hadn't for a very long time paid attention to what it was telling them. And so it was really easy for them to become aimless in their work, the lack of through line, the lack of cohesive sense of where they were going. Instead, they were just bouncing from opportunity to opportunity. Oh, this looks good. Sure, I'll go there. Oh, the money's better here. Sure, I'll go there. But in so doing, they constructed a kind of a nest uh, over time, became a net, really. That was kind of you know trapping them where they were. And you know, without that through line, without that cohesive sense of what you're doing and where you're going, it can be really easy to get to a place where you've built a life that from the outside looks really impressive, but from the inside looks a little bit like a prison because it's hard to find a way out. And that was all really sourced in this kind of aimlessness that they had, this lack of a, a sense of connectedness to their productive passion. Wow. There's a lot there. It sounds kind of scary, actually, to fall into that because the whole point is that you're creating something. And yet we're kind of constantly working to get away from it so that we're safer and we fall into mediocrity. Right. And, and that's the thing. If, you know, we, we lose sight of the fact that everything we're doing, Jordan, uh, you know, from, from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. So it's how we treat our, the barista at Starbucks. It's how we treat our family or our, our girlfriend, our friends, how we lead other people, how we actually bring ourselves to the work that we do, whether we're really putting ourselves into it or not. Uh, Cause we can, from the outside, look like we're really bringing ourselves fully. We're doing great work. It's being celebrated. But inside, we know that we're really not bringing ourselves fully to what we're doing. We're kind of coasting. We put it on cruise control. You know, all of those things are building a body of work. Uh, and you know, the body of work is the sum total of value that we create over the course of our lifetime. And it's going to exist. That delta, that change, that body of work is going to exist whether we're intentional about it or not. And it is the sum total of all the value we've created. And so my the, the big question in my mind has has been for the last several years when i get to the end of my life and i point to that body of work is it going to represent what i really care about or is it going to represent the values the uh, objectives the opinions of other people along the way who kind of guided me in certain ways that were contrary to the things i really care about and you know, whether we 
recognize it, realize it, or want to confront it, all of us at some point are going to point to that body of work and ask that question, does this sum total of value I've created, does it really represent what I care about? Or did I compromise in some way? Did I fall prey to one of these forces and, and settle medius ochris? Hmm. How do we stay away from all that? I mean, what, what do we do? Do you help people do that? Yeah. So, so really the core message of die empty is this, listen, um, many of us carry these hopes, dreams, ambitions, ideas, things around with us. And, you know, for many people, they, they carry them with them, unfortunately, uh, to the grave, they carry them with them, um, until it's too late to act on them because they aren't diligent about getting them out of them every day. You know, I had a friend about a decade ago who was leading a meeting and he asked this kind of out of the blue question. He said, what do you think is the most valuable land in the world? And we're all thinking, that's a weird question. I don't know. It's kind of, kind of a bizarre thing to ask. And so we threw out a bunch of guesses like uh, oil fields of the Middle East. Wrong. Um, you know, diamond mines of Africa. Wrong. You know, so we're throwing out all these guesses. And finally, he said, well, I think I think the most valuable land in the world is the graveyard. Because in the graveyard are buried all of the unwritten novels, all of the unlaunched businesses, all of the unexecuted ideas, all of the things that people carried around with them. And they thought, tomorrow's the day I'm going to get around to this. Tomorrow's the day. I'm going to start this tomorrow. And they pushed it and they pushed it into the future until one day their tomorrows ran out. And all of that value was buried with them dead in the ground. And so that day I went back to my office. I wrote on an index card two words. I put them in my notebook, put them on the wall of my office. And those two words were the two words I really wanted to define um, my life. And, and they were die empty because I want to know when I get to my last day, when, when they lay me down in the grave on my last day, I am not taking my best work to the grave with me, that I have had the courage to act in the face of my fear, to confront uncertainty, to become the kind of person I want to become in the midst of accomplishing the kinds of things I feel compelled to accomplish. Um, and so really kind of the, the core methodology of doing that is, is five things. And I put them in the acronym EMPTY to make it easy to remember. Um, ethic, people, mission, tasks, and you. It spells empty. Ethic is about how are you engaging your work every day? How are you choosing to engage your work every day? How are you going to bring yourself to what you do? You know, sometimes we can become paralyzed by all of the options that we have in front of us. I don't know what to do. And when you don't know what to do, you can still choose how you will engage your work. So your ethic is a, is a selection of a handful of words that will define how you will engage your work that week. So for many years, my ethic was A-C-H-E. It was artistic curious, healthy, and energizing. Those are the four words that I wanted to mark everything I did in my life. So artistic means I always want to be the person who's revealing reality behind reality. So I go into a meeting with a team and my job was to reveal the subtle patterns nobody else saw because that's what an artist does. An artist reveals reality behind reality, right? C was curious. I wanted to be curious. I wanted to always be the one asking questions, always being the one asking why. Now, in a lot of circumstances, this got me into trouble, Right. But I always wanted to be the one who was uh, prompting people to not settle, to ask, why is this the case? Healthy. I wanted to engage with health and I wanted to be an, uh, an agent of health with every organization I work with, every team I work with, every person in my family, in my own life. I wanted to be an agent of health. And then E was for energizing. Now back to the show. I wanted to be the person bringing energy to the room, not the psychic vampire who's always sucking energy out of the room, right? Mm -hmm. So when I would sit down every week, I would look at my schedule. I'd look at my phone calls. I would look at the, the meetings that were going to happen, the tasks I was going to do. And I would ask myself, how am I going to be artistic, curious, healthy, and energizing this week as I approach my life and my work? So that's the beginning. You sit down, you ask, E, ethic. How am I going to bring myself according to this ethic to the work that I'm doing? M is mission. And this is really what we were talking about before. It's about tapping your productive passion, understanding your through line, understanding the thing that you're really trying to do. And by the way, that may not have anything to do with the tasks that are in front of you. It's the ultimate outcome that you're committed to. It's, it's the hill that you're going to die on, right? It's the objective that you're pushing toward. And sometimes we talk about passion, Jordan. Sometimes we're thinking like, how can I love the things I do all day? I think that's what we mean when we talk about passion for work. How can I cultivate more of a sense of, of love for the tasks? And I think it's a very short-sighted way to think about passion because this word passion comes from the root word that means to suffer. 
And I think if we reframe passion as a willingness to suffer on behalf of something. Now, sometimes we get a lot of pleasure and joy out of our passion, but sometimes it means we do have to suffer on behalf of something because we're so passionate about the outcome. We're willing to pour ourselves so fully into it that we'll stay a little later, that we'll come in a little earlier, that we'll spend more of ourselves. We're willing to pour our resources into this because we're so passionate about it. And so once we tapped into what that thing is or that set of things are, then we can frame up our work that week according to that mission and ask, how are these things going to push me in the direction of that through line or of that productive passion? Or how am I going to bring more of that thing that is my productive passion to the work I'm doing this week? So for example, in my case, my productive passion unquestionably is freedom. It's bringing freedom to people inside of organizations, outside of organizations, freedom to do their best work. So everything that I do on a, on a daily basis, I try to frame up through the lens of how am I going to bring freedom to the listeners of this podcast right now, to Jordan specifically as we're communicating, right? Um, to my family today as I'm interacting with my family, how am I going to bring freedom to the members of my family? How am I going to bring freedom, freedom to my clients? I'm going to be interacting with this afternoon, right? That's kind of the, the framework that I use. So we've got ethic, mission, people, these are the people in your life that you have to interact with. So you, most of us have relationships of obligation and convenience. Um, like Aunt Mildred wants to have mm-hmm. tea or convenience. I'm around these people, you know, by virtue of the fact I'm around them. But we often don't step back and ask, how can I build relationships into my life that are challenging, stimulating, that cause me to see the world in new ways, that allow me to build into others and help them see the world in other ways. So the third element, P, people, is about looking at your calendar, looking at what's going on in your life and asking, first of all, who is on my calendar this week and how can I bring a measure of freedom to them? That's what that's what I ask. Or how can I apply my productive passion, my mission to the relationships in my life this week? And who is not reflected on my calendar this week? Who do I need to reach out to? What loops do I need to close? Um, who should be reflected on this calendar as I go about my week this week. So that's really what the people thing is all about. It's about making sure that the relationships in your life are healthy and that you're staying connected and that you're building into others as they're building into you. T is for tasks. And this is about the stuff that you have to get done. And really, when you sit down to to look at your week and you do this EMPTY thing, the question you want to ask for tasks is, if I accomplish a handful of tasks this week, what would they be that would that would determine that this is a successful week? So how will I know my life is successful this week? What's the set of tasks that I need to do in order to make this a successful week? And so that's really what T is about, is making sure that you're building into your life a set of tasks that are moving you in the direction of your productive passion and making sure that you're not you defaulting or abdicating that contribution that you want to be making, but you're building tasks into your life this week that are allowing you to act in that direction. And then why is about you. It's about self-care. It's about building into yourself. It's about developing the discipline of intentional growth. What are you going to do this week to grow yourself, whether mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally? What are you doing? What are you building into your life to, to develop yourself? What are you going to study? How are you going to develop that amazing tool between your ears this week? When are you going to set aside time for that? When are you going to break away from your work so that you can refill your well, so that you can experience something that causes you to see the world in new ways, causes your neurons to fire differently, right? That's really what the why is about. And so each of those five things provide a lens through which to look at your week as you look at your your upcoming calendar, ethic, mission, people, tasks, and you. And if you do that on a regular basis, then you are far more likely to be moving in a direction that's going to allow you to build a body of work that you can ultimately be proud of. Wow, mouthful. Pretty long rant. That is perfect. I mean, the relationships are there, and that's why people are listening to this show as they want to learn how to create those relationships as well. Someone who's going to give you that untainted, very candid feedback and create time to create space to meet with them. Because it is true, if you're constantly having yes men around you, you're getting pat on your back or asking your mom for feedback, you're going to fail. That's right. I mean, one of the questions I, I love to ask, especially CEOs of really large organizations is, who in your life will speak untainted truth to you? Who in, who in your life will tell you when you're wrong? You know, and, and a question I always encourage people to ask, especially ask people close to them in their life is what's something obvious that I don't see right now? So, uh, you know, ask your spouse, ask your coworkers, people that you really trust. What's something obvious I don't see right now? It's a fantastic question, reveals, <laughs> reveals things you may not want to hear, 
but ultimately is a really valuable tool to help you continue to progress and grow and, and move in the direction where you're going to be able to make a contribution. So what are some action steps that guys can take aside from like go out and use what you learn on the art of charm to build those relationships? Is there some, what should people do right after they switch off this show at the end? Yeah, so there are a couple hopefully. of really simple practices that I've been implementing in with creative teams and also with individuals for about a decade now and I've seen tremendous results from these practices. The first one is just what I call a circle, forming a circle. A circle is a group of five to seven people that you're going to meet with maybe once a month. Um, and the goal of the circle is to get together with people and talk about the work that you're doing, talk about what's going on in your life, talk about your aspirations, talk about the things that you're, you're planning to do. Um, because it does a couple of things. First of all, it bakes in accountability, um, into your life, right? If you know that you're going to be getting together with people in a month to talk about these things again, then it's kind of bakes in some accountability, um, to, to actually act on the things that you say you want to do. Um, and there are three questions that you can ask in the course of these circles. The first one is, what are you working on right now? So what kinds of problems are you trying to solve? What kinds of things are going on in your work that we, we can discuss here uh, in, in the context of this circle to, to help us gain better clarity about the work that we're doing? Number two, what can we help you with? Is there any problem that you're trying to solve right now that you would like for those of us who are gathered here um, to apply our resources to help you solve? Um, you know, so and, and this is, again, very effective method of getting different perspectives engaged in the problems you're trying to solve. And then the third question that I always encourage people to ask is what's inspiring you right now? So what are you seeing, noticing, reading, listening to, watching that is fueling your fire, that's filling your well, that's challenging you in your beliefs, whatever it is. Um, so what's inspiring you right now? So the circle is, is one practice that I found incredibly effective. Um, if nothing else, just to get you talking about your work with other people and gaining some feedback and perspective on the things that you're doing, because we love to talk about the work, but we don't always talk about how we're doing the work. And that's a huge um, pitfall for a lot, especially a lot of entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, people who are trying to do things on their own. They don't have a reliable feedback system. Um, but it's also the case in corporate America because, you know, there's, there's so much posturing and politics that happens that we often don't really get vulnerable about how we're feeling about the work that we're doing. So having a circle can give you a forum for that. And a second practice related to relationships is to do what I call a head-to-head -head. And a head-to-head -head is picking one other person. So, um, it, you know, somebody that you respect. My criteria is always whose notebook would I want to see inside of? If I could just read anybody's notebook that they carry around with them or read somebody's notes, whose notes would I want to read? Because I respect their thoughts that much. I want to know what's on their mind. That's the person that I want to get together with for a head-to-head. -head. And you're going to get together however often is you know, convenient for you. But typically, again, about once a month or once every seven weeks or so tends to be a, a pretty good um, rhythm for it. But you're going to get together and you're going to share with the other person something that you've learned since the last time you got together. So it could be a book that you read. It could be a talk that you saw, something that you have learned that you are trying to apply to your work. And you're going to teach it to the other person over coffee or lunch or whatever. Um, and they're going to do the same thing for you. And then you're going to talk about how those principles, those ideas apply to the work that you're doing. And you know, a lot of people, Jordan, when I share these practices with them, they think, well, wait a minute, I, I don't even have time to get together with my family, right? Right. I'm busy, right, I'm working exactly. like crazy. I never see my friends, my family. And now you want me to build relationships with acquaintances into my life. Um, you know, when is that going to happen? And I understand that. I certainly do. But I think often we sacrifice effectiveness on the altar of short-term efficiency. And because we feel the constraint of time and focus and resources, attention, I think sometimes we don't do the very things that are actually going to yield the most value in the long term uh, because they don't feel efficient in the moment. And so I guarantee you, if you build these practices into your life, you will regain that time in spades in the long run because it will begin to fill your well with ideas, insights, more systemic kinds of thinking that allow you to draw from a broader range of stimuli when you're trying to solve problems. And actually, I believe not only make you effective in the long run, it actually make you more efficient in the long run, but it takes a little discipline in order to get there. Excellent. Wow. Th there's so much here. And I thank you so much for your time because I think it really is important for us to realize that we do have a trend towards mediocrity in the workplace. It happens no matter what job you're in. You're always seeking comfort because it's natural. 
but it does counteract what makes you a valuable person in your organization in the first place, regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur or, or an employee. It does. And, and, you know, I think that the love of comfort is often the enemy of greatness. I think that many of us never know what we're capable of because we settle in because at some point we just jump on the treadmill and say, okay, this is a good pace for me and, and I'm, and I'm happy. And, and by the way, I don't mean to imply that for everyone, your objective, your goal should be to make as much money as possible or to build your business as big as possible. For some people, their productive passion is their family. I mean, that's really the core thing that drives them. And their work is just something that supplies the the means that they need to be able to do the other things that they really care about, that they want to do. And that's great as long as you're being intentional about that, as long as you're living your life. Uh, and, and you're spending your focus, your assets, your time, and your energy purposefully in that direction, that's wonderful. That's great. Not everybody should build a big business. Not everybody should you know, try to go out and make as much money as possible. That's not how everybody is wired, right? And I think some people violate their contribution while at the same time building these big massive businesses everybody looks at from the outside and says, wow, look at that. That's amazing. Look at the contribution they made. But in so doing, they compromised their values. They compromised the thing that they really felt like they should be doing, even though from the outside, it looks all shiny and pretty. So that's what makes this so complicated is it requires a tremendous amount of deep personal work to, to figure out not just you know, what am I going to do that's going to make everybody go, wow, but what am I going to do that at the end of my life, I'm going to point to and I'm going to say, yes, I can go to my grave, not having done everything, but I can go to my grave without regrets about where I put my focus, my assets, my time and my energy. Uh, and, and I spent myself wisely in those areas and I can die empty of regret, but full of satisfaction for a life well lived. Well said, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. Where can guys find more from you? Yeah, the best way to find me is at toddhenry.com and uh, would also encourage people to subscribe to the podcast, The Accidental Creative. We put it out about once a week and we try to get thought leaders on there to talk about some of the very same stuff that we're talking about here. Excellent. Thanks so much, brother. Well done. Thank you. Interesting. You know, it really does make a lot of sense as an entrepreneur not to surround yourself by yes men. I feel like that's one thing that corporations and entrepreneurs have in common is we always surround ourselves by really high quality people, but sometimes those people are afraid to give us candid feedback because they're on our payroll. And of course, we want to make sure that we're always creating, we're always innovating, and it's really easy to slip towards comfort and mediocrity. And hopefully we won't be doing that here at The Art of Charm anytime soon. I hope you guys enjoyed that. More from Todd at ToddHenry.com. See you guys next time. Special thanks to you guys for listening. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordanh at theartofcharm.com. And of course, boot camp details there as well. Go ahead and email or call me. Honestly, that's the best way to get in touch and I'll give you everything you need to know about our programs here in LA. If you guys are listening but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, go ahead and make the change there because getting your shows delivered free to your phone or computer while you sleep is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. Just go to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and search for The Art of Charm. That's it. And if you guys want to write us a nice review, we'll love you forever there as well because it helps other people find us, and it's really important to keep our show ranks up. So tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.